Nordoff Robbins is a music therapy charity. We believe in the value of music for all people in society. We want to live in a world where through music, human potential is recognised regardless of disability, illness or social exclusion. We hope that by listening and hearing about the value of music through the eyes of these artists in this podcast, you will begin to understand how music and music therapy can benefit the lives of those who are faced with significant challenges. Find out more about music therapy and Nordoff Robbins at nordoff-robbins.org.uk. The greatest songs are the ones that you hear and you feel like you've heard them already because it's like they were always there. I love that moment in a song where somebody says something that feels unretractable. You know what I mean? Where they, somebody says something that's so real, you're kind of like, wow, they just said that. Hello and welcome to Three Track Therapy. I'm Chris Hawkins. I'm a radio presenter and I love how amazing music makes us feel. And I'm Louise Gregg, a music therapist at Nordoff Robbins Music Therapy. I help people with their physical and emotional well-being through the shared experience of playing music together. In each episode of this series, Lou and I are joined by a different musician who will share the three tracks that have had the biggest influence on their lives. It could be a song that they've written themselves or a track by another artist, whatever their selection. Three-track therapy is all about allowing artists and songwriters to open up about key pieces of music that have helped them to process and then share how they feel. For a very long time, I believed that I could sort myself out solely through using m- music as, a, as a, a therapeutic tool. I reached a point a, a, about three years ago of realising that wasn't actually true and that while music is a necessary part of my kind of therapy toolkit, it's not sufficient. I also need professional involvement as well. Our first guest on 3-Track Therapy is the brilliant Frank Turner. Frank started out in the post-hardcore band Million Dead before embarking on a solo career. He now has eight studio albums under his belt, has played over 2,500 shows and runs his own festival too called Lost Evenings. Frank, welcome to 3-Track Therapy. Hello. Frank, going back in time, I hold you up as an example. Whenever bands ask me about how to progress, I always use you as an example. And I think that unrelenting touring in a modern world where product is is, is not a way of making a living in a band, mm. uh, touring is. Uh, and you've done it right since the start uh, as often as you can, haven't you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, I was quite old-fashioned about it, I suppose, but it was also it was the avenue open to me. I, um, you know, uh, and I grew up idolising bands like Black Flag who used to tour an awful lot. In fact, to the extent that, as sad as this sounds, I used to read the kind of read through their old tour schedules from the early 1980s and stuff like that when, when I was a teenager. So, you know, I always wanted to tour hard. It's fortunate that my career has happened at a point in time, you know, uh, since the birth of things like Napster and then iTunes and Spotify and all the rest of it where kind of physical sales were in decline anyway. So um, it is how I make my living. Like I say, I'm, I'm quite old fashioned about it. Was there ever a time when you were playing show after show and thinking, this is not working? Or, di- or did audiences keep on building for you? Um, I think there, there were definitely moments at the beginning. Um, the very start was, was quite hard because um, Million Dead were not a wildly successful band, but we could pull you know a good few hundred people around the UK and we could play to sort of 800 people in London and, and that was the level we were at. And um, uh, you know, my decision to pick up an acoustic guitar, and it, for the first couple of years it was just me, um, was regarded as kind of completely insane by pretty much everybody. The, the path of going from being in a punk band to doing more acoustic stuff is a bit better trod these days than it was in 2005. And I I got laughed out of the office, in, in one case literally, uh, by industry people when I said I was going to make kind of folk records. And my first 
solo show in London after the last Million Dead show in London, which had about 800, 900 people at it, uh, there were three people there. Um, and it was a free show as well. So, uh, you know, it was um, it was definitely that that part was quite hard. And, and um, it's a strange period of my life looking back because the, the way it broke down is at the time I thought I had a plan and all my friends thought I was insane. And then looking back, all my friends think I must have had a plan and I think I must have been crazy. And it's kind of flipped on that level, you know. So, um, but, that, you know, it wasn't, it definitely wasn't all roses right from the start. I'll tell you that. Uh, tell me about those early shows then after Midian Dead. Uh, what what was your mindset? What 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 did you think you were going to achieve? Well, I think that that's, this is a thing that I'm actually quietly proud of is that um, when I say I look back and think I must have been crazy, I, I find it quite difficult. I mean, we're talking about, you know, sort of 15 years ago here. Um, uh, and I, I find it quite difficult to sort of put myself back in that mindset exactly from where I'm sitting right now. But the one thing I can say, and, and this is the bit that I'm quietly proud of, is that like I was clearly following my art in a way that feels quite pure to me. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't the commercial thing to do at that point in my career. Um, and it wasn't sort of, um, you know, it wasn't an easy route to fame and riches or anything like that. It was just kind of an idea I had, a musical and artistic idea that I had that I wanted to pursue. And so I did, um, uh, you know, and I was fortunate enough to be in my early 20s, which meant means you're invincible, you know what I mean? So I could do things like not really live anywhere and sleep on the floor for three straight years and um, and all the rest of it. So I definitely had some advantages in in that sense. But um, I was I was very driven, but I was driven purely by art in a way that it seems quite cool to me. So you've gone from sleeping on sofas, a 20-year-old making music for the love of it, to thousands and thousands of shows, doing it for your job, touring all over the world. Has your relationship with music changed at all now that it's gone from that sort of idyllic young 20s stage to something that really is now paying your bills? Um, I think, well, the first thing I'd say is that I have a, I have a, an unsettled relationship with the word job in the sense that, like, on, on some levels, you know, it is my job to be a touring musician and it's certainly what I spend the vast majority of my time doing and it's how I make money to live. Um, and I do a fair amount of things like planning meetings and account meetings and, you know, all of that kind of business. And that certainly feels job-like rather than artistic. But at the same time, you know, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I've got the best job in the world. I do what I, my passion for a living and I'm my own boss and all these kinds of things. Um, so I, that, I am sort of hesitant to use that word from time to time. Um, it, the relationship does change on some levels. I mean, it's not all for the bad. I think the, the sort of cliche is that you kind of, you lose the magic once it becomes... Um, you know, established to a certain degree, but one and there there are levels on which that can be true if you're not careful. But one of the other things is is that with the level that I'm at in my career now, quite a lot of the time I don't have to do anything except to be a musician. You know, in the early days I used to tour manage myself, sell my own T-shirts, print my own merch. You know, um, I, I was doing everything. And these days I have people who cover all of those jobs for me. And that means that all I have to do most days when I'm on tour is really focus on being a musician and being the best musician I can be. And there's a lot of time during the day to write. And I actually have more time to write in a way now than I did when I was younger. Um, so, you know, it, it cuts both ways. Um, uh, I think the main thing as well, of course, is that, as you know, 
<laughs> time passes in a linear fashion. We all get older. There's entropy in the world and all this kind of thing. And and I, I, I feel very strong that I don't want to repeat myself. So thinking about art as I go along, as I get older, as time passes and I cease to be uh, 20-something sleeping on a sofa. I mean, I did that already. Do you know what I mean? And I wrote songs about it. So going forward, I want to write songs about different things and different experiences and to have different experiences and then try and write about them. You know, I'm not really interested in trying to repeat myself ad infinitum. Time to get the first of your three picks now. Which is your first track? Uh, so the first track I've chosen is a song called I Knew Proof Rock Before He Got Famous, which is the first track on my second album, Love, Ire and Song. Let's begin in the beginning. We're lovers and we're losers. We're heroes and we're pioneers. We're beggars and we're choosers. We're skirting round the edges of the ideal demographic. We're almost on the guest list, but we're always stuck in traffic. I did my first album in 2006, came out in 2007, and I thought it was okay, but I thought I could do better. Um, and I, as a songwriter, um, so and that that this was the first song I wrote for the next record, and it was the first moment in my life where I really felt like a proper songwriter. I felt like I'd said something that was kind of lasting and that was profound, that was original, and that was a huge moment for me. Um, and not only that, but it's a song about kind of remembering where you come from and remembering who's important to you, remembering what's important in your life. You know, it's the list of names in the song is a, is the, a, they're all real people. They're all friends, still friends for the most part. Um, and they were people at a bar called Nambuka where a lot of my solo career started out. And, um, it was about kind of remembering that, you know, the music I was trying to make was about community and it was about honesty and it was about purity and art and all this kind of thing and not being distracted by all the things that can come along with a success in music and that kind of thing. And therefore, it's a song that I go back to often um, as a sort of grounding exercise. You know, it sort of reminds me what I set out to try and do and what I still think is important. Tell us more about where you were at in your life when you wrote Proof Rock. Well, so basically I was this this bar, Nambuka, which is on the Holloway Road in London. It, there is a there is a bar of that name there now, and very lovely it is too. But the, the building that we were in essentially burned down. Um, so it was a slightly different thing, different group of people. But we, I was living... Um, I was living on tour for the most part and when I wasn't on tour there was a sofa in a hallway upstairs in Ambuka that I used to sleep on for free. It was utterly grim but as I say I was in my early 20s so I was invincible um, and uh, you know I was surrounded by friends and everybody was doing stuff and, and there were lots of uh, there was so much music going on. I mean in the, in the song itself it mentions Justin um, a guy called Justin Hayward Young who's now the singer in the vaccines but at the time was a folk singer called JJ Pistolet and Jay is in there and he's now uh, Beans on Toast and and you know there's lots of uh, and harps is in there who now writes songs for Florence and the Machine and people like that so you know but we, at the time we were all kind of young and and kind of beautifully ignorant in the sense that we didn't really know what we were doing we didn't really know how the industry worked or anything like that we were just like well this is fun and I'm I've got an idea and and it went from there so it was a very kind of um, halcyon time when you perform it does it feel different now than it did then. Uh, yeah, definitely on some levels in the sense that like, you know, I wrote that song 13 years ago and my life has changed radically. And uh, some of the people in the song, as I say, are still very close friends. Dave Danger was the best man at my wedding and Tree is my tour manager to this day. So she tends to be in the room when I sing it. But at the same time, you know, some people have drifted off radar and I've got older and life's moved on in the pub that it was about burned down in 2009, I think it was. Um, so, you know, there's there's definitely 
life has definitely changed, but I, I, I believe very firmly that a, a song should kind of breathe as it ages, you know, and, and not necessarily in terms of the strict technical aspect of chord sequence and lyrics and that kind of thing, but it's inflection and it's, it, it's um, the things it implies and things that it means can change over time for me. And I think that's almost a good sign of a good song. There's no intro, right? Mm. It's a pretty simple start. There's, yeah, and there's no chorus either, which I'm quite pleased about. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's quite nice to have a song that's a sing-along that doesn't have a chorus. That feels quite good. Yeah, that actually feels quite unusual because normally the chorus is the bit where everybody joins in and it's easy to catch on with, but yeah. I do find myself singing along to it even without that. Well, it's, so the, musically the song is based around a kind of a repeating chord structure um, that is kind of eternally ascending it's like a, a, a Moibus strip or something or at least that was the idea an Escher drawing of a song in the sense that it starts with a C chord and you know goes to the implied fourth implied fifth and there's, it's sort of always going up with every chord until, and then it resolves going up again and it's sort of constantly ascending and that was that was the sort of central musical idea I think about everything I do in, in enormous depth so um, uh, uh but yeah, it, it starts, it's, again, it's kind of a statement of intent in a way. It says, that's the kid at the beginning, we're lovers and we're losers. We're heroes and we're pioneers and we're beggars and we're choosers. We're skirting around the edges of the ideal demographic. We're almost on the guest list, but we're always stuck in traffic. And it's a portrait, and, the, and it's a kind of, there's something of the kind of beggar's opera about it, do you know what I mean? There's a kind of grandeur in, in um, and you know, we were all kind of like broke and with poor personal hygiene and kind of, <laughs> um, we all drank too much and didn't sleep enough and all this kind of thing. And we were all kind of beautifully engaged in art in a really unadorned way. Uh, and, and I wanted to kind of capture that, memorialise it, that was the idea. Yeah, it definitely does that. Like, I think the going straight in and just having those chords at the start of the bar definitely makes me listen like it it makes it clear straight away like this is a story you should probably listen to me right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah well good excellent job done i mean I, I'm, I'm a very firm believer that the first line of a song is really important because it's when you lay out your stall for your listener and you try and say to them you should continue to listen to the rest of the three minutes of the song because and then you say what you're going to say you know um and i think that, that that's the thing i think about a lot do you tend to know what you're aiming for at the start of a song or does it develop as it happens? Uh, it differs. Um, sometimes um, sometimes songs come about because I just, I get a feeling and I think, and it's almost like I imagine what a song that captured that feeling would be like. And then you try and write that imaginary thing and make it into a real thing. And so, yeah, definitely there are occasions and I think this song is one of them where I had a sort of feeling of what a song would be like that hit all of these marks and then set about trying to hit them. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's a lot of stuff that just ends up as snippets and fragments and that suddenly find a home years later in some cases in a, in a place I didn't expect them to at all. And that can be kind of interesting too. Let's get a second choice from you now. What's this next one going to be? So this is a more recent song of mine. It's a song called Get Better, which is a song from an album called Positive Songs for Negative People uh, that came out in 2015. And um, it's sort of, um, whilst on paper you're not supposed to have favourites and all songs are equal and all this kind of thing one way of judging a song's success is whether or not it can bear being a set opener or closer and Get Better is quite often one or the other which I think is um, a vote of confidence in the song I got me a shovel
song, like many of my songs, a lot of people regard as be, as being. I quite often get called kind of a relentless optimist and this kind of thing, which I find funny because to me it's a song about being in a terrible place. You know, it's not positive on the face of it. I mean, it it has positive kind of aspiration and positive normative intention, but. Um, you know, in in the song itself, it's not written from a great place and it's not intended to sound like it is. There is sort of an anthemic resoluteness to the song that does feel a bit raucous and out of control, but strangely focused at the same time, <laughs> sort of like a lost and foundness. Yeah. Um, I, at least, obviously, that's really present in the lyrical content, but mm. the arrangement definitely pushes that, like, even yeah. just that, like, snare, like, ka, 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 yeah, like yeah, that, yeah, like, sure. every single beat. And it, like, it doesn't really relent. Um, yeah. Is, in terms of arranging stuff, is that, does that play a big part in your processing? Do you know how you want it to sound when you're writing? Uh, Generally speaking, yes. I mean, I work by this stage of my career. I was working with the Sleeping Souls, my band, my touring band, who just just my band, full stop these days. And um, uh, we'd sort of come up with this modus operandi by this point in time, which is that I would write a song, I would have an idea about how I wanted it to be arranged, we would try that out, and then people would suggest improvements, and we'd kick stuff around. And in fact, the album Positive Songs, Negative People, we rehearsed. We did two hours rehearsal every day for the entirety of the Take That Cart tour. So for about two years or so we were rehearsing two hours a day on these songs so they got kicked around a lot and this is quite a good example in the sense that the original arrangement of get better was a bit more kind of um soul i guess i mean i was very obsessed with sam cook's um uh, one night stand at harlem square live album at the time and i sort of had this idea of giving it that kind of live soul feel and and as time went by um or quite a lot of the kind of like delicacy got removed on purpose it was just kind of like nah this song needs to be more brutal it needs to be more kind of um simplistic i can show you like you know the, uh, at the beginning it had some kind of like uh um my guitar part was a kind of more of a soul kind of stab like that kind of thing and, that, and in the end my guitar part became Do you know what I mean? It's just sort of like, this was not a song on which to be fancy, shall we say, you know? And the idea was just to kind of make it relentless and make it kind of uh, strong enough to support the lyrical message. Was it a turning point song? Did it feel like it at the time or do you look back on it in that way? Um, Yeah, to a degree, yes, in the sense that, like, I think one of the other things really governing my thinking at the time is that, like, you know, it's very easy if you have a record that's your biggest record state that becomes a mainstream success and all the rest of it to feel a bit like the, the both you you and everybody else is expecting that to be your peak um and whether and and arguably it was my peak commercially but i'm not talking about commercially i'm talking about artistically you know it's like i had this song called recovery that was a huge hit and and it was like well is he ever going to write anything that good again can he match it can he top it all this kind of thing and to my mind get better is a better song than anything on its on the preceding album i i would i think that very strongly actually um and so you know it felt really good to me to kind of prove to myself and to other people that i'm not i hadn't kind of um, I wasn't spent, you know what I mean? But what about uh, the sense that you were in a, maybe a dark place? Did it help you? Was it a turning point in, in terms of how you were as a person? Um, not as much as I'd hoped it would be, is the honest answer to that question. Um, because um, in more recently than that, I engaged with therapy in a serious way. Um, because my issues in life 
I, for a very long time, I believed that I could sort myself out solely through using m- music as a, as a therapeutic tool. You know what I mean? Um, and, and that includes both listening to music that I liked and also writing music. And I sort of believed for a long time that that would be enough to see me through whatever my troubles were. Um, I reached a point about three years ago of realising that wasn't actually true and that while music is a necessary part of my kind of therapy toolkit, it's not sufficient in and of itself. I need... I also need professional involvement as well. What sort of place are you in now, Frank? A much better place. Um, I got married last year, which was a fantastic thing. And my wife um, has, was a great help in the sense that she is a uh, psychotherapist. So um, that helped. Uh, um, and uh, yeah, you know, things have definitely kind of changed a lot for me in a way that I, I think is good. I think change is good. I believe in change. And, um, you know, uh, I... There's not, there's not really, there's not any large parts of my life that I'm kind of like ashamed of particularly. I mean, there's one or two, but generally speaking, I'm, you know, I did what I did and that's all good, but I don't want to keep doing the same thing forever in any aspect. So here we are. The third and final track you've chosen today is one by another artist that's had a big impact on you. What's that track? Uh, my third pick um, is a song uh, by the uh, great and sadly now late uh, Bill Withers. Um, I'm a huge Bill Withers fan and um, it's an obvious choice from his catalogue, but the song is Lean On Me. studio in the 60s and 70s is some of the best music ever made because it is in the best sense of the word it is pure pop music um you know it's uh it's 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 everything that a song should be you know and it's simple and it's driving direct and the melodies are just incredible and the arrangements are beautiful and all the rest of it the, when, once you start getting into like so sam kirk i'm a big fan of but i do think that his live shows the ones that i've heard recorded were his absolute pinnacle because they're they are to use an anachronistic word kind of punk you know they're, they're kind of they're relentlessly hard and relentlessly energetic in a way that i adore um and then bill Withers is just a great songwriter you know um he gets referred to as a soul singer i'm sure that correct on many levels but to me he's just a great great songwriter the first few notes of lean on me like it it seems so blatantly obvious but put it together the way that he does and suddenly he's created this iconic melody right that's just the first few notes of a major scale up and down and i mean in a way one of the greatest songs are the ones that you hear and you feel like you've heard them already because it's like they were always there you know, and that's definitely true of this song. I think it's true of a lot of early Dylan stuff. It's to me, it always feels like Bob Dylan didn't write his first few records. He discovered them in a locked trunk in an attic. Do you know what I mean? Covered in dust, but they were always there. And and lean on me, you hear it. The minute you hear it, you go, oh yeah, 
And almost as, as a songwriter, one of the things I love is, is hearing a song and going, oh, God damn it, why didn't I think of that? You know what I mean? And, but, and of course, someone has to at some point. And there are still songs like that that come out, you know? It's not a thing. Some people seem to think that, like, all of those ideas are gone now, and that's just defeatism. It's not true. It's just that, that in a way, this is, it demonstrates that it is the hardest thing in the world to do is to write something simple. Because, you know, something that is both simple and meaningful and good is, is the biggest challenge there is. Would you say that's something that you're, that level, of simplicity is that something that you're aiming for when you're writing um it certainly has been it is it is an idea that has haunted my songwriting for a few records um uh the first track on um be more kind is called don't worry and that was a pretty naked attempt to write a bill with a song um and uh you know there's definitely i've been through large phases of of believing very firmly in the value of simplicity having said that i i am in the middle of working on another record at the minute um uh, and indeed the last record i did no man's land is not an especially simple record and, and i think there's a time and a place you know and i and i go in cycles creatively in terms of what is animating me um, philosophically. So uh, there's definitely been large swathes in my career where simplicity has been an obsession, but not at this exact moment in time. Thanks so much, Frank. You've been uh, you've been really honest, and I know that you you find that fairly easy, don't you? Um, yeah, I mean, it's well at this point in my life. Yes, I mean, it's certainly uh, something that I've sort of talked myself into doing as an approach. At first, as a songwriter, and then as a person. But it seems to be the better approach in life. <laughs> It definitely um, is one of the the biggest things that I take from from your music, Frank. The the level of rawness and vulnerability, um, mm. but it being well crafted, um, that those two things can live alongside each other, um, and I think that's it's so powerful in the way that it's communicated through your music. That's very kind of you to say. I mean, I think a lot of that just has to do with my taste in music. Genre aside, the thing I always enjoyed all through my life was listening to music which felt raw and honest. And I love that moment in a song where somebody says something that feels unretractable. You know what I mean? Where somebody says something that's so real, you're kind of like, wow, they just said that, you know? And it's now out there in the public record and you can't take it back. And there's something I find, as a listener, I find that sort of enthralling and indeed comforting. Um, And so I try and do the same thing in the music that I make. Great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Frank. My pleasure. Bear Louise is a guy who uh, wears his heart on his sleeve. Yep, absolutely. And you you hear it in the music, but I think the way that he was able to talk about that as well was just really refreshing. So passionate about everything, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. You know what I, I also like about Frank? Uh, I, I enjoy the fact that he's got a, a confidence... You know, he, he knows who he is. He, yeah. he doesn't play it down. Yeah, it's almost like he um, he understands the responsibility that he has to say something that's meaningful and that um, that he feels like matters. He's not going to just throw something out there. And in that respect, it feels like the, the music he's creating stops him from sort of getting that sense of a self-importance that maybe you might find with some people. And he did live that life sleeping on a a floor in a in a flat in a perhaps not great part of London to get to where he is now I th- that that's been an important part of his journey yeah definitely and that just that sense that uh, music and art was worth that it was it was worth the the price that he paid and just hearing him balance those things is really lovely to hear You've been listening to music therapist Louise Gregg and me, Chris Hawkins. For more information about music therapy, visit nordoff-robbins.org.uk.
Nordoff Robbins Music Therapy is the UK's largest independent music therapy charity dedicated to bringing music therapy to those affected by mental health, life-limiting illness, isolation or disability.